I suggest that we can prove the existence of God from the impossibility of the contrary. As Christians, we do not give up our intellect. The strongest evidence and argument for the existence of God is that without a belief in God, you can't prove anything. How can the law be material? That's the question I'm going to ask you. I would say no. And can you give me an example of anything other than God that's immaterial? Welcome to the Revealed Apologetics Podcast. I'm your host, Elias Ayala, and here at Revealed Apologetics, Our goal is to equip believers to defend the Christian faith, and we want to equip you to do it in a way that is honoring to God and faithful to Scripture. So sit back, relax, get your thinking caps on, and let's dive into our topic for today. Welcome to another episode of Revealed Apologetics. I'm your host, Elias Ayala, and yes, if you hear noise in the background, I am driving. Uh, This is not video. It is purely audio, so I was able to set it up beforehand, so I'm not um, uh, doing anything that would be uh, dangerous for me to do. My eyes are on the road. Uh, Just kind of talking here. Um, Redeeming the time. Um, I am very, very busy. And uh, oftentimes when I record, it's usually really late at night or or super early in the morning. I suppose it's somewhat relatively early. It's 7.19 right now as as I'm speaking. Um, I'm on my way to work and I have a pretty decent, uh, I suppose maybe 25 half hour uh, ride to to work. And so I want to um, redeem the time a little bit and kind of just... Record something for uh, for my listeners. Um, I know that uh, people enjoy, uh, people are enjoying the podcast as I am, am hearing, which is wonderful, and um, and uh, that's that's great. And so, um, just as a, as a quick shout out, if you are enjoying the the podcast or the YouTube channel, Revealed Apologetics, uh, let me know at revealedapologetics at gmail It is super encouraging. I, I don't. Um, I don't really know much about the technological back end of all of this, and so I really don't know in regards to analytics and, and things like that, or how many people are listening, or who's enjoying. I, I kind of just really find out either someone will private message me or email me or something like that. So um, I really don't know the the back end of, of all that. Um, so it would be very encouraging. Let me know if, if you are finding this useful. Um, if you're enjoying the podcast, write a, a, a positive review on iTunes. That would be helpful as well. And, of course, please subscribe to the YouTube channel. There will be a lot more interviews going on. I have some really interesting guests uh, coming on that we will be covering the topics of uh, apologetics, and Calvinism, Reformed Theology, and a bunch of other interesting things as well. Also, um, just to might as well get this all out of the way before I dive into what I want to talk about today, 
Um, Revealed Apologetics, uh, when I intended to start this, um, I wanted it to be kind of a platform where people can learn apologetics, but also um, an opportunity to um, to invite me out to your church or if you're doing a conference or something like that. I am a traveling speaker as well, and I've spoken at um, various uh, venues. I've spoken at um, Texas A&M International University, um, shared the stage with... Um, you know, very good Christian apologist, Matt Slick from Karm.org, uh, Eric Hernandez, who is an, an up-and-coming uh, Christian philosopher as well. Uh, great guys, but I've had the opportunity to share the stage with them as well to discuss issue, issues of apologetics. And so, yeah, if you want me to speak at your church or at a conference or, or whatever, um, you could email me at revealedapologetics at gmail.com. All right, well, all that aside... Um, I'm kind of going off the top of my head, but I figured eh, maybe I can talk about something and you could learn something and find it useful. So um, I'm going to talk a little bit about something that is theologically focused here. Now, the other day I received a question um, that I am not going to answer directly here, but I perhaps, perhaps I'll cover it indirectly. And it was an interesting question. And the question was, is it possible for someone to blaspheme the Holy Spirit while Jesus is not present, is it possible to blaspheme the Holy Spirit while Jesus is not present? Now, this is a good question, not because it is a theologically accurate question. Of course, the question itself um, seems to have some misunderstandings as to how uh, the Trinity works, the nature of Jesus, and, and things like that. But as... as um, I suppose as awkwardly formed as the question is, it, it is a good opportunity to uh, to kind of expand on a theological truth that I think is important, both theologically for the Christian and um, it is apologetically useful um, in the sense that the Christian, or when we engage in Christian apologetics, we're often set against other theological perspectives and heresies like the Jehovah's Witness. Uh, when we're inter interacting with Muslims, the answer to this question might be particularly useful. Um, and so what I want to talk about is uh, Jesus Christ as the God-man. What do we believe about the nature of God? What do we believe about the person of Jesus and his nature? And how does that all fit into how one might answer uh, such a question? Okay. Well, first, what we believe about Jesus is that Jesus is God in human flesh. Okay. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And then we have John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now we know from the Gospel of John, that the Word, who was at the beginning with the Father, and is identified as himself God, is Jesus Christ, right? He is the Word, become flesh, and he tabernacles amongst us, right? Jesus, there, we have the divinity of Christ exemplified, and we have the humanity of Christ exemplified. So we have the Word, who is with God and is himself God, and we have the Word become flesh dwelling amongst us. We have the humanity of Jesus, Okay. Now, this is very important because when we understand the nature of God himself within biblical theology, we understand God as a trinity. Now, for those who may be answering, uh, I'm answering, those who might be listening uh, might say, if you're not a Christian, you'll say, well, wait a minute. Now, you guys believe in the Trinity. The word Trinity is nowhere in the Bible, and so you're adding philosophical concepts to the scriptures. Well, well, that's that's not the case at all. While it is true that the word Trinity is not found in scripture, the concept most definitely is. Okay, Remember, the word monotheism is not in the Bible either. 
But we do clearly believe that the Bible teaches that there is but one God, right? Deuteronomy 6.4, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. As Trinitarian Christians, we affirm that, okay? Now, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without shape and void, and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. So we have God, who was there in the beginning. We have the Spirit hovering over the faces of the deep. And we have the Son, exemplified by the Word in John 1, 1 and 1, 14, is present at creation. So we have um, this idea that the triune God is present. And you have also in Genesis 1, 26, where God um, uh, refers to himself in the plural. Now, I do understand that there are specific understandings as to why uh, the author of Genesis refers to God in the plural. Um, but I, I won't address that specifically. But be that as it may, the biblical theological position is that God is a trinity. God is one being. Okay, uh, we believe there is only one God, but this one God exists as three co-eternal simultaneous persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the three persons within the Trinity are equal in all things, uh, in their attributes. Okay, so for example, the Father, we would rightly say, is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. We would say that the Son shares omnipotence. He is all-powerful. And we would say that the Holy Spirit shares omnipotence. He is all-powerful. And we can say this across the board in regards to the other attributes of God. Okay, so I would say that the Father is omnipresent. I would say that the Son is omnipresent. And I would say that the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. Now, if we can take this knowledge and place it in the background of the question, is it possible to blaspheme the Holy Spirit when the Son is not present? Well, that's really going to be wrapped up into the question, uh, is Jesus everywhere is jesus does jesus have the attribute of omnipresence now um it is true that we believe that jesus was not only truly divine but truly human being even even now as we speak jesus is a man right now with a physical body uh the idea that jesus is one person with two natures both human and divine is still true today um, I do not believe that when Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended to heaven that he became, you know, a spirit. He maintains his physicality and his humanity. Uh, the Bible says that uh, there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And that is written after, that's post-ascension. Okay, so the Apostle Paul refers to the humanity of Christ. We believe that Jesus, in his human nature... Uh, it will remain in that state for all eternity. When, when we go to be with the Lord, we will see a embodied physical Jesus, okay? But he will also be divine. Now, within the concept of the Trinity, we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the second person of the Trinity uh, in the Christian doctrine of the incarnation takes on human flesh. Now, this is important. For when the Son becomes incarnate, he takes on a human nature, but he does not cease to be divine. Now, this is very important. Christian orthodoxy does not hold to the idea of what is known as the kenosis heresy. Okay? The kenosis heresy was a heresy that taught that when Jesus became man, he ceased to be divine. Okay? And they would use uh, the verses where it says that he emptied himself, right? We do not believe that uh, Jesus, when, when, when Jesus emptied himself, that he emptied himself of divinity. I don't even think it's a logically coherent concept for a divine person to cease to be uh, divine. 
okay? Uh, so um, that's not what we believe, okay? We believe that the second person of the Trinity, while maintaining divinity, took on a human nature and dwelt among us. And as he took on uh, humanity and dwelt among us, the human nature of Jesus is most assuredly limited by spatial location. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth. When Jesus was in Nazareth, his body was no longer in Bethlehem, uh, vice versa, right? Jesus had to travel from one place to another. Um, Jesus, even if we don't think in terms of omnipresence, um, Jesus grew hungry. Jesus was tired. We see this in scripture, but Christians don't deny that, right? There, there was a debate. I don't remember uh, who the debate was between, but it was between a Christian and a Muslim. And one of the uh, debate questions that was posed, I think the Muslim suggested, let us debate this topic. And he suggested this question. He wanted to fra frame the a debate in this question. Jesus, God, or man? Jesus, God, or man? And the Christian, of course, rightfully denied that the debate should be framed in that way. Why? Why do you think the Christian would deny a debate with the, uh, the question, Jesus, God, or man? Well, of course, the very fact that the Muslim framed the debate in that question shows that he misunderstands what Christians believe about Jesus. For, for Christians, it's not Jesus, God, or man. We believe that Jesus is the God-man. He's God in human flesh. So it's not either or, it's both and. And, and from a Christian theological perspective, it's important that we understand this. I think um, when we don't think theologically about these issues... Um, there tends to be an imbalance in the church, and there's an imbalance in the way in which we look at Jesus and understand Jesus. We we tend to think of, say, for example, the divinity of Christ so much that we forget that he was truly human. And the fact that he was truly human and, and was a man is a very important theological position to hold, right? It was because he was a human being that he could relate to us, that he could be nailed to a cross, so to speak, okay? So, so for sure, believing that Jesus is God in flesh is an essential doctrine. Jesus says, if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins, right? You deny the deity of Christ, you're not a Christian, okay? But at the same token, we need to also affirm that Jesus is a man. He's truly human, right? He was truly able to be our substitute upon the cross, okay? So these are very, very important things to keep in mind. Now, let us phrase the question again. Um, well, if we can simplify here, is Jesus everywhere? Okay, is Jesus everywhere? Well, considering the question with the background of what I've just, you know, presented here, the answer to that question is going to be yes and no. Okay. Now, before uh, you know, if there's a Muslim listening to this, or maybe some person who denies the Trinity, uh, before you shout contradiction, first uh, we need to keep a couple of things in mind. First, when someone claims that um, something is contradictory, what you are in essence claiming is that the proposition stated violates the second law of logic, okay? The second law of logic is the law of non-contradiction. Something cannot be both true and false. A statement cannot be true and false at the same time and in the same sense, okay? A statement cannot be both true and false at the same time and in the same sense, okay? So when I say, is Jesus omnipresent? He's everywhere. Is he everywhere? And I say yes and no. That is not necessarily a contradiction because there is a sense in which he is and there is a sense in which he is not everywhere. Okay? 
And what senses am I do I have in mind? Well, it's the senses in which the biblical categories give us. Namely, that in regards to his divine nature, Jesus has all the attributes and qualities of divinity. But with regards to his human nature, he has the attributes of humanity with all of its limitations, spatial location, getting hungry, getting tired. This is very important because when anti-Trinitarian uh, folks kind of bring arguments against this position, they will argue in what appears to be log uh, logically cogent and convincing ways. For example, is Jesus God? The Christian will say, yes. Is God everywhere? The Christian will say, yes. Is Jesus everywhere? The uninformed Christian will say, well, no, he's sitting at the right hand of God, he's in heaven. And so if that's true, then it seems to logically follow that Jesus is not God. You catch that? So is Jesus God? Yes. Is God everywhere? Yes. Is Jesus everywhere? No. Therefore, Jesus is not God. You see the, the logic that, that some people, um, uh, you know, they try to walk through that logically and show, see that this doesn't fit. Something, uh, you know, something's not jiving uh, right. Okay. But it does not logically follow that Jesus is not God when you clarify the senses in which he has the attributes of divinity and the senses in which he has the attributes of humanity, okay? And as Orthodox Christians, we want to affirm both the divinity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. Paul says in the book of Titus, uh, he refers to um, Jesus, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay, in the book of Colossians, we're told that uh, that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power and that he is the one who created all things. Now, it's interesting that when Jesus Christ is attributed to creation, that is also an implicit attribution to divinity. Why? Because in the book of uh, Isaiah, God says, I alone created. So if God alone created and Jesus creates then Jesus is God. Uh, now, how do we how do we hash that out? Well, of course, when you take all of what the Bible says about there being one God, and we clearly, as Christians, believe there is one God. There is not many gods. We're not polytheistic. Uh, we're not like the Mormons that there is an infinite number of gods, but we just worship the God of this planet. We're not um, tritheistic, in which we are saying that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three separate gods. We believe in one God. Right. Uh, oftentimes it's kind of more popularly stated um, thusly. God is one what and three who's. God is one what and three who's. In regards to the ontology of God, the being of God, he is one. In regards to the personhood of God, he is three. God is one being with three centers of consciousness, each of which have the characteristics of personhood. Now, you might not be able to wrap your mind around that. You might be able to say, how can this be? Uh, that's fine, right? When we reflect upon God, obviously, we're gonna, our minds are going to be stretched in, in how we're you know, trying to wrap our head around these things. But the difficulty with intellectually grasping it doesn't falsify it just because it's difficult to think about, right? God is uh, a trinity. He is a triunity of persons. And we get this from not a verse over here or a verse over there. But it is um, believed upon because of the entirety of Scripture. When we take all of what Scripture has to say, we find that there is one God and there are three persons who are called God. Okay? Very, very important. So is Jesus everywhere at once? Yes, he is in his divine nature. 
is Jesus everywhere at once? No. No, he's not with regards to his human nature. Now, suppose you're listening to this and you don't agree. Well, <laughs> that's fine. You're free to reject uh, Christian theology. But if you're going to criticize and critique Christian theology, you need to be sure to understand our position correctly, lest you be guilty of presenting what we call in logic a straw man, where you construct a person's um, position in the weakest way possible so that you can knock it down and give the impression that you've accurately um, refuted it, okay? So uh, it's very, very important that we understand um, consistently and biblically what the Bible says in regards to the person and work of Jesus. The theological uh, terminology, excuse me, the theological terminology, if you're interested, uh, those who may be listening and have a, a background in theology will already know this, but uh, perhaps those who are listening and, and they're saying, well, well, is there a theological term that characterizes this, this Christian doctrine? Well, yes. Uh, when we study the topic of the hypostatic union, what we are speaking about is the issue of the personhood of Jesus and the two natures of Christ, and how Jesus is one person with two natures. Okay, um, And you study that issue, the hypostatic union, you can pick up any systematic theology and read up on um, the, the, the category known as, known as Christology. Christology. When you are engaged, for example, in Christological studies, you are engaged in the study of what the Bible in its entirety has to say with regards to the person and work of Jesus, the nature of the person of Jesus, you know, and the human and divine aspects of that. Okay, so now you, uh, again, within an apologetics context, you want to be very careful when people use the scriptures to fight against the idea that Jesus is both human and divine. What you'll find in the case of, of Islam, uh, what I've found, is that Muslims will, um, in a correct attempt, by the way, the methodology is, is correct, but the conclusion is incorrect. Okay, here's the methodology of many Muslims who try to use the Bible to falsify our claims uh, as to the divinity of Christ. What they would do in some cases is they would say, well, let's grant that the Bible was true and the New Testament is true. Well, look what it says. It says Jesus is a man. You see, your own scriptures say he's a man. And so they will quote all of these scriptures which highlight the humanity and the limitations of Christ. And they'll say, see, Jesus is not God. He is clearly a man. And you want to be very careful uh, to recognize that you cannot refute a biblical position by only using a certain set of verses that support your own perspective. This is true when a Muslim or an anti-Trinitarian person is trying to critique the biblical position. And it is also true when you yourself, as a Christian, hold to a specific theological position. For example, in the Arminian, Calvinist, and Molinist debates, uh, it does no good that if you're going to biblically defend your position, that you only quote passages that seem to support your position. You're going to have to deal with those other verses that, um, at first glance, may appear to be contrary to your position and show that it is, in fact, not contrary to your position. You show how it fits together and things like that. All right? That's why we need to follow proper interpretive uh, methodologies, right? We want to read the scripture uh, with a consistency, with an acknowledgement that um, uh, that ambiguous passages in scripture are interpreted in light of in light of uh, clearer passages. Um, of course, when we're engaging in, in hermeneutical and interpretive studies as Christians, we also have the presupposition that the Bible is the inspired word of God, and because God is a God of truth, His word does not contradict. 
and if his word does not contradict, then we are in no position to adopt an interpretation of a passage that would cause a contradiction to arise when there is in fact no contradiction. And so we do uh, come with these uh, presuppositions when we come to the text, and we need to consider all of these things if we're going to interpret the Bible in a consistent fashion, okay? Very, very, very important. Same thing when we're defending the Trinity, right? It does no good as a Unitarian, someone who denies the Trinity, uh, to quote passages in which God is one, right? Like I said before, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you Christians say God is three. How dare you? Clearly, it's a heresy. Well, uh, granted, not every Christian is right in everything that they say, but, I mean, come on, throw us a bone. We're not that dumb. <laughs> Obviously, we affirm the, ver the verses in the Bible that there is one God, right? There is no, uh, no confusion there. But, of course, we would argue that uh, we try to take the scriptures in, in regards to what it says in its entirety so that we can have a wider, consistent uh, picture of what God says about himself what the scriptures say about Jesus, his person, his work, his nature. All these things are super, super important. All right. Well, uh, that is all I have on that topic. I think uh, the original question that we began with is, um, although it might seem for people who are familiar with uh, theology and apologetics that it was kind of an ill-formed question, but sometimes uh, questions like that can provide us an opportunity to kind of clarify uh, perhaps what may be confusing to some people. And um, and so I, I kind of thought that that would have been a good route to take in this episode. So I hope this is informative. I hope you guys are, again, enjoying the uh, the podcast, Revealed Apologetics. And uh, if you haven't already, please uh, push the subscribe button on the Revealed Apologetics uh, YouTube channel. We have some really great um, interviews coming up, and um, I'm looking forward to doing some of those as well. And um, again, if you if you need an apologetic speaker workshop done, a conference, or uh, just a, a speaker at your church for whatever reason relating to anything that we cover on this podcast, um, I also am a traveling speaker. So you can reach out to me at revealedapologetics at gmail.com. All right. Well, that's all I have for today. I'm almost at work, and I hope that this has been uh, useful and a blessing to you. Take care, and God bless. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening to Revealed Apologetics. If you have any questions that you would like me to answer um, on one of our podcast episodes, please feel free to send in your question uh, at revealedapologetics at gmail.com.